0: because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today.
1: This is Recode Media. I'm Peter Kafka. That's me. I'm talking to you from Vox Media headquarters in New York City. If I sound intimidated, if I sound nervous, because I'm talking to the Matthew Ball. Man, some of you know as that guy on Twitter, some of you know as the guy who writes really long pieces in media re-def, I know as the guy I've been asking to come on this podcast for how long, Matt? At least two years. At least two years. You made it. Thank you. I did. Thank you for coming. Um, I want to explain to the readers who don't know who you are, who you are, I think a good way to do it is by reading a transcript from a different podcast I did with Jason Hirshhorn, who you all know. Uh, Jason talks about going to lunch, Kevin Mayer, big deal, Disney executive, and Bob Iger, the biggest deal, uh, Disney executive. And this is what Jason says about you. We're having lunch at Disney, and Iger says, quote, you know you're an idiot. And I'm like, why is that, Bob? And he goes, you give away for free what we pay tens of millions of dollars a year from for management consultants. What Jason is talking about is the stuff that you wrote— For him and still write for him is the stuff that Bob Iger, CEO of Disney, finds incredibly valuable, stuff that he would pay millions of dollars a year for, but he can get for free. We can all get for free thanks to your writing. So thank you for joining us. It's
2: a pleasure to be here. Um, We're going to charge a lot of money for this podcast.
1: That's good to hear. Uh, What should we charge? To untap Matt Ball's brain.
2: Well, as you just heard, I'm not the best judge of how to monetize my own work. (laughs) And certainly, as the CEO of Disney and owner of ESPN, Bob knows quite well. So So, maybe you should go with him. Let's start with that, uh,
1: because I do want to ask you about Disney and Apple and Amazon and all those things and how you got to what you're doing.
2: But what are you doing today? What is paying your rent or mortgage or associated bills? Right now, I'm raising a venture fund. And the ah, goal is to Welcome. go after and invest in many of the topics that I've written about, many of the theses I've had for a few years. You want to put your money slash other people's money where your mouth is? Correct.
1: I think I can spot value in, I'm assuming, media and technology. Pretty much. Yeah. How's that going? It's going well. Are, you so, are, we, are we soliciting money for a fund right now? I think that might not be allowed. <laughs> That's not the goal of this podcast. Okay, good. You're not soliciting money for a fund. No. Okay, good. Do not give Matt Ball your money. And then I'm confused because you 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 were, you wrote for Jason. You still write for Jason, even though you won't write for me. Bothersome. You worked at Amazon. We'll talk about that. And then for a period you were working, you tell me, you had something to do with NBC, Universal, slash Comcast. You had your own company. They bought it. You, you tell me what happened.
2: It's, it's very simple. I've been working with a company, Illumination Entertainment. They're a famous studio behind films such as Despicable Me, Minions, Secret Life of Pets comes out shortly. Yeah. Have been working with them quite a bit over the past year. They have some interesting concepts under the founder, Chris Melodondri, of how to go after interactivity, digital media, many of the themes that I'm very passionate about. And so I've been helping them as they start to think through those products. There's not too much I can talk about there, but Okay. That's so a you're gist.
1: consulting for them, have been consulting for they're them. Working they're they're using they're using your brain Correct. as well. Yes. And we get it for free. Awesome. Yeah, I can see lots of things you could do with Despicable Me, one, two, three.
2: Yeah, they're phenomenal characters, I think, in general, when you take a look at what's the type of media that goes from one world to another world. You have some of the players in the market. Pixar is a phenomenal storytelling company. I don't know how many people sit back and they watch Coco or they watch Up and they say, I want to live in this world. I want to take this character in my pocket elsewhere. I want to do a video game or interactive experience. Illumination in particular is so oriented around character-first storytelling that when you start to take a look at what are the opportunities in interactive, in digital, that's an incredibly fertile storytelling Yeah, and you're
1: speaking to someone who just spent a lot of money to take one of their kids around Universal. We spent a lot of time in the uh, Despicable Me corner. It's very popular. Yeah. Got a lot of Minion product at our house. I can imagine. Okay, so let's start talking about how you view the world, and then we can work backwards a little bit. We're speaking a day after Apple's WWDC conference, Mm a lot of stuff that most— Regular people don't care about, Uh, along the way, they they dropped a three-minute preview of one of their Apple Plus TV shows. Right. And sure enough, there's Matt Ball commentary on Twitter about it. Your your, your thought about them displaying that video
2: at WWDC was? I found it pretty surprising that their first opportunity to really show off with their video product was a few months ago at their video-centric release. You'd think you would do that there? You would think so. And the company does have a strange history of when and how they, of course, present their video content. Yeah.
1: You mentioned me, indirectly.
2: Yeah, so when they first came out with their trailer for Planet of the Apps, the short-lived TV series that I think came back out in 2017, their first foray into video... They did that at a $3,000 ticketed code media conference. Very successful conference. I believe there was a live cast, but those of us listening at home, not attending in person, couldn't see the trailer.
1: Yeah, that's that's sort of standard for that sort of thing. They show something uh, They show something in the in the room that they can't stream, which, by the way, Disney just did for their investor day.
2: Disney did too, but it's very strange to have a secretive video program that no one knows about, that everyone <laughs> up into the talent that's shooting the show, that's starring the show, knows very little. Yeah. And we know nothing about it until they start doing private behind-the-scenes displays of that trailer. Yeah, so let's, let's just
1: talk about what you think about Apple's plans as far as we know, what they're going to do, right? Where well, they've said this is a subscription product, mm-hmm. which could or could mean you do or don't pay money for it. Um, it's coming out in the fall. They're paying a lot of people with, with, with well-known names, Steven Spielberg, Jennifer Aniston, et cetera, to make content.
2: What do you think they're trying to do? In the simplest way, I think what they're trying to do is replicate what Amazon has been doing for several years. So if you take a step back and you take a look at the rise of D2C services, such as HBO Now or Showtime, those services all launched first and foremost on iOS. I believe HBO had a six or nine-month first window exclusive to the iOS devices. Uh Despite that fact, Amazon, which has a very strong anchor asset in Prime Video, seems to have, by most third-party estimates, really driven share gains in that share of direct-to-consumer subscriptions, which is to say the majority of customers who are signing up for Stars or HBO or Showtime, despite the fact that they tend to have iPhones, they tend to have Apple TVs and iPads, are choosing to subscribe to those services through Amazon. Apple is cognizant of that and is trying to understand what can they do to drive more usage of their ecosystem, make them the primary destination for video services, and it looks like Prime Video is a solution to that. My guess would be that their goal is to come out at a modest monthly price or a free price, To broadcast to consumers, use us as your core destination for video, subscribe to HBO through Apple, and consolidate all of that usage iTunes up and down. This is weird. This sounds like something I wrote. Uh, that wouldn't surprise
1: me. And 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 so so broadly, right, the idea is Amazon sells subscriptions to other people's stuff through Amazon. That has been a good business for mm-hmm. Amazon. Apple would like to do the same thing. They already do that, by right. the way. You can already buy HBO, Showtime, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And the thought is we're going to spend maybe billions of dollars to create content uh, that we're either going to give away or give away for a very little fee um, in order to get people to hang out and buy more stuff. Correct. Um, Facebook, I think, is still still exploring this idea. Mm-hmm. So basically, we're just going back to the old TV Guide world, except it's TV Guide plus buying other services, right? Everyone wants to own that sort of dominant home screen, whatever that right metaphor is, for
2: video viewing. Right? Yeah. Sort I, of obvious? I think that's right. When you take a look at what's distinct about video versus music, through licensing agreements or the fragmentation of the industry, services such as Apple and Spotify are able to effectively get all of the content in existence and offer it to subscribers. You can't do that in video for a number of different reasons, which means at the end of the day, as long as you believe consumers will want some video that you can't produce or you can't acquire, you have to find opportunities to bring that all together. We know from the era of traditional television that aggregated experience, the pay TV bundle, adds value to you. Just imagine if you needed a- adds value to whom? The consumer. Just imagine if you needed to hook up a different input on your TV to watch HBO versus Showtime. You needed a different line into your house to watch ABC versus ESPN. That's a terrible experience. No one wants that. There's friction. My parents can still barely understand how to change their inputs from one S- Same to reason another.
1: when the music companies first tried to do digital music, they actually did break up by labels. And there was like a right. Universal and BMG label and then one that was Warner and EMI, whatever it was. Uh, so that doesn't work. Um we can talk about the merits of the bundle, but, but, but so it's clear that Apple wants to get into this sort of creating their own bundle, selling versions of the bundle.
2: Do you think that they need to spend billions of dollars uh, to create video to make this work? I don't know whether or not they do or don't to make it work. I think what they are seeing is that they are struggling to compete with Amazon in that video space despite some of the aforementioned advantages. And they're trying to figure out ways to improve that offering. And they know that people are particularly passionate about video. They know that their brand can attract top-tier creators, and so the idea that they can take some of their cash reserves, put out about a dozen or a half-dozen TV shows per year, and use that to become an anchor asset around that video content is a very plausible strategy. Plausible. Plausible, and
1: you're, and we'll, we'll talk about this more. But, but you're, you're, you're pretty fierce, uh, at least writing-wise, right? Like you, you're a big fan of Netflix. Um, I think you're, you're pro Disney. We can talk about this. Uh, I think you're quite skeptical about Time Warner. So when you say Apple's plan is plausible, that that counts as a compliment,
2: right? It does count as a compliment. I think it's one bolstered by the massive reach they have, and with all of these tech companies, to some extent, it comes down to a question of how long and how deep do you want to play for this? They have the opportunity to take a third pass at video. If you count Planet of the Apps and Carpool Carry App, Oki as the first, they also have the time to spend 10 years trying to get this right. Video isn't going anywhere. Attention isn't going anywhere. Nor are there systemic hardware advantages.
1: And, and right, so if Apple gets this wrong, right, let's say they just completely boff this. They can still recover. They can still have they're not, their iPhone business isn't going away, right? They're trying to build up additional businesses. Right. So you are a big Netflix fan. I am. You've written about them multiple times. It's great. You have a you do these tweet storms, and then you also do actual written copy. Um, the tweet storms get longer and longer, and then you retweet yourself periodically. It's it's kind of fun to it's watch. It's a good the format nat- for you. What is the thing that and you're always telling people what they don't understand about Netflix? What is the big
2: thing most people don't understand about Netflix? I think the biggest thing that's misunderstood about Netflix is really what their objective is. And if you take a look at the company overall, the primary competitors that are identified are the HBOs, are the Amazons, are the Hulus. What's different is Netflix overall is going after what we would today consider pay TV, an aggregated bundle of all genres, all styles, that is intended to deliver to audiences multiple hours per day of usage. Right. Take they are the bundle. Correct. In the difference eyes. is they are bundling all of those genres, what we used to consider different styles of content, or networks all within one. When you take a look at what Netflix is doing, as an example, there's a lot of criticism as to the average quality that they put out. The fact that HBO's average quality of programming is very different, it's higher, it's more elevated, yeah. it's more aspirational. You hear this You hear this a lot from people who work in media. You do, but I think the difference is many of those people in media also produce content that you would consider easier going, more lowbrow, brow if you want to use a loaded term, yeah. but the reality is audiences watch five and a half hours per day of video. And they're some, not all watching Downtown Abbey, though. They're not. It's not Downtown Abbey. I never watched it anyway. But that's the point, is some of that time per day is highly intentional, prioritized time. The lights are off, your screens are off, you're not whispering to your partner. I, and there's something I want to watch. It's specific. I'm choosing it. Right. The reason why you have five and a half hours of a day of video, which seems impossible, is the fact that much of that is multitask. You are cleaning up after your kids, you're cooking dinner, you're relaxing, you got off work, you don't really want to pay attention, you just want to Listen, you want to be idly entertained. Netflix is going after the entirety of that consumption. That means programming differently. That means spending differently. That means building a service arranged around different principles. And so when companies look at Netflix and they say, look at what they're acquiring, look at what they're not acquiring, look at the volume of spend, it's all oriented around that massive pie of video. In the past,
1: uh, when Reed Hastings would would talk about competition, he'd mention Verizon or Amazon, and he still will. And a lot lot of times, there's there's a lot of focus on HBO. For a while now, he's been saying things like, our our major competitor is Fortnite, or our major competitor is sleep, right?
2: And Mm -hmm. it's kind of a wink and a nudge, but you take it very seriously. I do take it seriously, and I think to some extent, that focus does explain why the company has been so resilient. So you take a look at the past six years. Netflix has effectively grown its pricing by 60%. Their catalog is believed to have shrunk by anywhere from 40 to 60%. Because the networks are pulling stuff back and or they're saying we don't want to pay network X for this stuff. Correct. They've had to go from 15% penetration, the early adopters who usually have lower standards are more willing to try things, to an excess of 50% penetration in the U.S. Those customers are late adopters. They're typically harder to get. Despite having their price go up, their offering go down, reaching harder to reach customers, the company continues to grow as quickly as possible. The answer to that is twofold. One is the company is excelling in the space they're operating. That's digital video. That's direct-to-consumer video. And the traditional ecosystem, pay TV is rapidly eroding. They don't need to monopolize much of that share shift to still grow. What's important there is implicit in what Reid is saying is they know that when 10 minutes are taken from the old system, they're going to win two to three to four or at least one of those minutes. What he also knows, however, is sometimes that decision is earlier. It is not, I'm going to watch video online. It's not, I'm not going to watch pay TV. I'm going to watch Netflix. It's customers saying, I want to spend time doing something. What am I going to do? Actually, I think I'm going to do video gaming. Actually, I think I'm going to play Fortnite. That's an earlier stage decision. And what he's reflecting on is the fact that they are increasingly losing that choice. And they can't compete there. So,
1: when he talks about like they, if you go visit Netflix uh, in, the, in the last few months, they play up all this interactive stuff they're playing with. Mm-hmm. Right? I would call it choose your own adventure. They call it, what is it something branch storytelling. Uh, it's choose your own adventure video. Right. I um, believe there's a trademark issue. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes they get offended by it too. Or Steven Soderbergh too. Branching narratives. Right. That's the term. It's a choose your own adventure. But he, he's, there's, not a, there's not sort of a, a linear path, right, where he's saying, well, if we make our stuff more interactive, thus we'll compete more with Netflix. That's just saying one of the things our, our customers might want to do is interact with our video. If they want to do that and that makes them, makes them more likely to hang out with us, then do something else, great. But it's not a, he's not, it's not a direct sort of we're going to compete with Fortnite by doing X.
2: I think the more important way to think about it is really in this idea that what we traditionally think of as video games and what we traditionally think of as video is converging. We saw that a few years ago with Twitch, with more communal, cheer-based, text-based live experiences that delineation between those two on extremes is continuing to meld. So you think my thought
1: that the video games are something you do in, in one part of the house or on one screen or with one device and watching TV is something you do on a, it is it, is a distinct thing, that's an old fuddy-duddy way of looking at it and that everyone else, is, younger folks are going to increasingly converge.
2: Yeah, I think so, and we've already seen numerous examples of that. So to take a step back, if you take a look at video gaming as a category, video gaming's primary limitation today is the fact that the skill requirements are very high. The degree of immersion is very high. So if you take a look at that idea of how is it that 300 million Americans spend three, five and a half hours a day watching video, it's because it reflects, it allows that full range of engagement. The challenge for video game is trying to find opportunities to allow for more passive play. If you, to pick, reduce up the skill. If you pick
1: up Fortnite for the first time. It's,
2: it's intimidating. intimidating. Especially if you're old. Yeah, and, well, and frankly, the very premise of Fortnite is how quickly it adapts. To some extent, and I talk about this with a friend of mine who you know, Shriram, if you stop playing for a month, even that time can be daunting. So what you're seeing is whether that's coming from the traditional game makers or the mobile game makers trying to make more of a lean-back, passive gaming experience, or you see the video-related companies, and again, Soderberg made Mosaic with HBO yeah. a year ago, Bandersnatch, that's coming from the other angle. That's bringing some interactivity and some involvement to video. So you don't have any, any,
1: any spidey sense, like when we saw 3D a few years ago. Mm-hmm. everyone said, oh, 3D is the thing. We're going to invest heavily in it. And then they went to VR. That's the thing. We're going to invest heavily in it. And everyone sort of moved it w- at once. And then, then we hit the valley, right? And then everyone said, actually, consumers don't actually want this. You're pretty confident consumers do want this. You point to things like Fortnite as an argument that, yeah, they're doing it. We don't have to worry about this being theoretical.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, if we were to take apart why 3D worked, why VR didn't work, and when and if those might come around, there are distinct reasons for that. Yeah. I think the difference here is we have seen interactivity building for quite some time.
1: So it's hard for me to gauge, because again, I'm way out of the demo, but ESPN did this thing at game two of the NBA finals Mm -hmm. on Sunday where they said, we're going to have an alternate feed, which they've been doing for a while. The alternate feed makes sense to me, but we're going to do it one aimed specifically at teens. And what we're going to do is we're going to take Katie Nolan, our sort of millennial-ish host, put it with three other people. And they're Mm -hmm. going to talk while the game is going on. We're going to to flash up graphics like you'd see if you were playing, you know, uh, an an EA game. Um, And they're just going to chat. And I watched it in and out. And again, way out of the demo. It seemed terrible to me, and I can't tell whether the idea is terrible, mm-hmm. if it's an execution thing, or, and or if this is the kind of thing that an ESPN, no matter how diligently they try, won't be able to solve. If someone's going to solve interactive sports, it's going to be a non-traditional company.
2: Or the answer is you're just too far out of the demo. Yeah. It may just be that. Yeah. I, I, I did you watch that? I haven't watched it. Okay. You take, think, you take a look. It, it, it
1: has a, I say I described it as being the, the Steve Buscemi gif, right? The hey, kids, mm-hmm. um, I it just seemed like I got it looked like if you said if you looked at Twitch for the first yes. time and said, oh, well, how could we do this? You'd end up with something that looks like this. Except if you looked, I think the lesson here, I'm guessing, is it's very hard for the incumbent company to figure out how to do a, a different version of itself.
2: So you cautioned me on giving long answers. Yeah. Uh, I'll give you the longer answer, or rather the shorter version of said long answer. I think the key thing to keep in mind is what's always interesting when you have a delivery change or a technology and distribution change is not so much how that content moves from one device to another device, but what new content is created to begin with. There are numerous examples of that. So to take an example, I was speaking recently to the former CEO of Square Enix, Wadasan, and he was talking about the fact that the gaming companies that led in the arcade era struggled to move over to the console era. That's your Super Nintendo, that's your PlayStation. For very fundamental reasons, when you played an arcade game, that experience was tapped out at 30 minutes. You couldn't save. You couldn't have multiple people playing. The skill set required to develop games there were very different than at home where you could have a 20-hour story. So even though it's video games, it's a whole different idea. Right. You're trained to a different feedback loop. You hire different creatives. You think creatively in a different way. Then you have the advent of mobile games, very different format, very different monetization. We don't see any of those classic companies. Even when we look at online games, the gaming companies that primarily thrived in the 90s and the early 2000s, very different than those that really struggle in the online world or rather thrive in the online world. And then even we have an example today of Fortnite, which is a very different conception of an online game that frankly the Activision blizzards of the world themselves leaders in early online gaming are struggling to replicate. That whole premise is important when you think about how interactivity comes from. The question is not necessarily, is this going to be engaging? Is the technology too early? Is it just hitting the right demo? It's going to take some time for the new creatives to emerge, to want to play with these tools, to see whether Banner Snatch works, how it does, what the limitations are, and to some extent for audiences to digest how those experiences work.
1: So this isn't just a matter of ESPN saying, well, look, if we're going to do this, we got to hire whoever works at Twitch. Or, you know, we got to go hire the Fortnite team. However we're going to make our stuff more interactive, we've got to go find those people. It's, we also have to let people sort of come to us and say, here's what we want to do with your product.
2: Yeah, I think a huge part of it is actually just going to be the younger audience members who have sat there watching for five years, 10 years, frustrated by what they can't do. It's that anecdote that people give where their two-year-old picks up a hard copy magazine, tries to swipe it, yeah. and can't. Or yells at it. Right. That's the new one. And so I think the question is, as you have this new generation that is used to different interaction models, used to spending their leisure time differently, then watches traditional sports and has a want for something or wants to take it in a different way, a different expression, once that talent to some extent grows up, to another extent moves into more traditional media as that convergence of gaming and media occurs, that's where you'll start to see the innovation.
1: That answer was not too long. That was a great answer. I can make it longer. No, no. I'm going to take a quick break so we can give our brains a break. i will be right back.
0: Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
1: I'm back here with Matthew Ball, who's going to drink some water while I keep talking about Matthew Ball for a second. This is great. I want to go through a few more media companies, and then I want to talk more about... You. You're a big Netflix fan, but you're also a Disney fan. You like what Disney announced. Um, there's a shorthand for all this stuff that sloppy thinkers like me do, and they say, oh, this is a, Dis- a Netflix killer, but that's, mm-hmm. that's just a sloppy headline. You like both what Netflix is doing, and you also think what Disney has lined up is also going to be a successful
2: product. Right. Because? I think at the end of the day, the interesting thing about taking a look at the future of SVOD or these subscription video-on-demand services is, as is always the case with technology and companies— In the media space we get into this very manichean narrative that basically says distribution is king or content is king yeah both of these companies are likely to survive for very different oppositional reasons we know that disney's huge advantage here is their ip is so stellar frankly it's actually so strong you are likely to underestimate how popular it is not overestimate it or even value it appropriately they may be coming late to market but they are coming out with such a high volume of outstanding quality and if we want to talk about Warner later a little bit, we can talk about that. A brand that consumers already know and love.
1: That multiple brands, right? Disney means a lot brands. to a lot of people. But
2: so does Marvel. So does Pixar. Right. And crucially, this is also content that audiences in the States alone are still spending in excess of $3 billion a year for home video for. For rental and DVDs. Just for DVDs, Disney stuff, yeah. For just Disney. And so they're bringing a fundamentally better consumer value proposition to a market that will bundle all the best content in the world. And it's fundamentally about asking audiences to take existing spend and not make room in their lives for more spend for another video service, but instead to just change the channel from Walmart or Best Buy to iOS or Disney. That, I think, is going to be fundamentally
1: successful. It's funny. I've literally talked to my kids about the fact that we generally sort of buy slash rent. We buy a movie a month, Mm -hmm. give or take. I said, well, we're going to stop doing that because we're going to be adding
2: this Disney service. And they said, oh, and they thought through that. Okay, fine, good, done. Right, and there's actually significant upside to Disney because if you think about that $3.2 billion in consumer spend, half of that is markup that goes to the retailer. Half of that is captured by Best Buy or Walmart. Yeah. It's not going to Disney. Disney is likely to capture the entirety of that or go after the entirety of that with their SVOD service. So I think the point is Disney is so strong in content that, that it to can some show extent, up late. It doesn't matter whether it was this year or last year or even 2021 that content is still going to resonate there's still going to be demand for it the fact that that is launching within a much broader disney ecosystem there are still 30 million people who go to a disney park a year the opportunity to give that as a free trial to push it to give a family that spends five thousand dollars on a cruise line a year-long subscription all of those augment their opportunity to get in but what's critical about that is Even when you think about Disney's advantage, if you say that Disney is this example of content is king, many of the advantages that I just mentioned aren't really about content. It's about access. It is about cannibalization opportunity. It is about how you package or go to market. And so the big story, and then if you look at Netflix, is really about distribution. But how did they do that? They got it by buying the best content on Earth in high volumes, typically at prices they shouldn't have ever gotten. This is Netflix we're talking about. Of yeah.
1: Netflix. Yeah, they took everyone's great content and even mediocre content and said, we're going to make something new with this.
2: Right. And so I think when you take a look at this apparent strangeness of being bullish on both, that's because the market says it's distribution, it's content. Neither is really a pure play yeah. on either. That's why the media industry is so interesting, why the technology shifts happen so often. There's nothing oppositional about that. But I then think, separate yeah. to that is when you say, what is it that Netflix is scared of Disney doing? Disney is not going after that five and a half hours per day of video consumption. They don't produce nearly enough of it. Their price point is low, but even if it were twice that, it's not going to convince someone who's watching, on average, 60 hours per month of Netflix, you don't need it anymore because now you're spending eight bucks on Disney. They're complementary. The question is like any other. We have always had times in the history of video where you have a primary service that drives tremendous value, that is bulk viewing, high tonnage, low cost per hour watched, and audiences still make time in their lives to go after what's most important to them.
1: So people have limited time, limited money, right. but you think it's a pretty good bet to think that they're going to spend 10 $13, 15 $16 a month on Netflix and watch a lot of stuff there. And for another $7, they're going to watch less stuff from Disney, but stuff they
2: really value. Right. And frankly, HBO is the best hallmark of that. You had to spend $100 per month to get HBO traditionally, and that means you were accessing untold thousands of TV shows per month. And audiences still said, I'm going to spend an extra 15 bucks to get HBO. Any reason to think that, that the fact that Disney has not been in the business of
1: streaming – and doesn't have that technical expertise that Netflix has been building for years and years and years and had to go out and buy it via mm-hmm. Bam Tech, et cetera, that that will be an issue for them? Or is it actually, once you know, you know, actually streaming this stuff over the Internet, not that complicated in
2: 2019? Yeah, I think there are a few different ways to unpack that. Firstly, the product and technology experience is highly critical. If you take a look at all of the advances that Netflix has made that they've invested in, the supposed benefits that they've accrued from that, you have to put a lot of stock into that. At the same time, there are three other elements there. One is they have bought BAMTech, which is the market leader that has been in the business for 20 years, supporting most of the most scaled transmissions globally. If you are buying expertise, they may have overpaid, they may have underpaid, they may have gotten a fair price, but they bought the best in the business. They also now own Hulu, also has tremendous expertise in technology. And then finally, no matter how important product and technology is, like any technology, it is getting easier at the basics level. Each year, we've gone over Disney,
1: Netflix, Apple. I'm going to save Amazon for a second. I'm thinking you were more skeptical about the company we used to call Time Warner. Now we call AT&T
2: slash WarnerMedia. I think that's fair to say. But one of the reasons why you have to do that is there are really two components here. One is what's the offering that's going to come forward? And then the separate is what's the market context that's already going to exist? When you spoke a minute ago about the fact that audiences are going to pay seven bucks for Netflix or rather Seven for Disney. Seven for Disney and then 12 for Netflix. You have to look at it at a broader context. Amazon has said that Prime is in 100 million homes. That means 100 million homes have access to a very large catalog of Prime video for zero. We know that in the United States there are 28 million homes that have Hulu. That's a number growing by 6 to 8 million per year. If Apple comes out at a free price point, you're now all of a sudden going to have 1 billion active iPhones that have access to that content. Once you look at those default subscriptions, the free services like Apple, like Amazon, the effectively free services like a Netflix, the guaranteed services or at least very compelling services like Netflix, you start to get into a world in which you are spending 20 to 30 bucks getting a tremendous amount of content. Yeah. The real question there is we know that on digital, the feedback loops are very strong. You're watching on Netflix, you're less likely to plug out and plug in, you're just going to keep watching. You know that there's so much content, you're never, ever going to finish it anyway. It becomes very tough to say, How are you going to go to market and say, pay even another $5. And so when we take a look at the Warner Media offering, and I don't know any of the details there, the content can be really strong, but the value proposition is a little bit unclear.
1: Yeah so the, the, there there were two stories in the last couple of days about this the time said they're trying to figure out how much to charge for this that the sort of they're built in through their cable distribution deals the HBO has to be $15 a mm-hmm. month so do you charge more f- by adding other stuff in there do you throw in other stuff and make that free um and then John Stankey did an interview with Bloomberg like within hours of that story coming out and saying Basically, it's going to be 15 bucks, but whatever it is, it's going to be some kind of, there'll be HBO and then they'll add more stuff and they mm. may or may not charge extra for it. The standard AT&T argument has been, we have HBO, they're the best. We have all this other stuff we put out from mm-hmm. Turner. We're going to spend more money to make more stuff. Uh, we have Warner Brothers, the, the actual movie studio. We've got a ton of stuff. People are going to love what we have. You seem more skeptical about the sort of sheer tonnage argument slash brand argument?
2: I think the truth of the matter is less around how I might adjudicate the quality or the volume of the Time Warner or Warner Media content. But the reality is there are many different players in market who have sizable catalogs. NBC Universal is making a very similar argument. Disney is making a similar argument. Sony has a large catalog. MGM has a large catalog. Some are being retained internally. Some are still going to be sold on the open marketplace. The reality is everyone has a large library. They've been in this business for quite some time. That's different from saying two things. One is that consumers today are going to value that in an a la carte experience. Yeah. And the second is that you are going to be able to build a large, viable business. And then again, you put that within the market context. And you said
1: Disney has stuff that they do value enough, the brand is meaningful enough, It's going to work. Everyone right. else, question mark.
2: Yeah, and part of that is is really just a question of brand. I think – there are a number of people in the marketplace who have said that Disney would be better off just selling their content to Netflix. And of course, there are going to be many consumers who sit back and they say, "I kind of preferred when I could watch Black Panther on Netflix. Yeah. And now you're saying I have to go pay it on Disney." At the same time, I think that there is a very valid argument that consumers, that families and parents would prefer a dedicated Disney branded service. They know what Disney stands for, they know it's in Disney, they know what Disney's going to do and what Disney's never going to do. Not going to find weird shit there. Right. The idea, I think, of assembling a Warner Media offering is just more challenging because that connection between the brands, what, what that it brand mean? means, right. is just a lot more opaque. Right. My kids know what DC means; they know what DC is, but and we've seen AT and T has been trying to build, or rather, Warner Media was back when it was Time Warner, a DC centric offering. This right. is not altogether dissimilar from one of the advantages that Fox News has that maybe vestigial may not be. But the fact is, Fox has always branded very strongly: Fox Business Network, Fox the Broadcast Good. Company, Fox Sports. There are all these strange inheritances that we've gotten from the old world that do or do not position you well. To some extent, no one knew when HBO came out in the 70s that all of a sudden in the late 2000s, pay TV would erode. It was boxing and softcore porn. Right, but, but not even from a content perspective. Yeah. Just It just so happened that if the new thing is SVOD having a carte premium cable network— yeah. Positioned you phenomenally well.
1: I do want to ask you about bundles and, and rebundling. At the beginning of this, you were explaining how the bundles of great value to customers. Lots of people have argued that persuasively. It seems pretty clear that like you're better off paying one small fee. I think for, the real point is aggregation has value. Okay. Frequently, when 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 someone writes about oh, everyone's there's a Disney service and a Warner service, and Amazon, etc. And by the way, these things are splitting up even more, right? So the Netflix stuff is going to disperse to different services. The Hulu stuff is going to, dis- the NBC Universal stuff is going to come off Hulu, go mm-hmm. somewhere else. Inevitably, someone says, boys, it seems like someone is going to have to create a service that takes all these channels and bundles them together. We can call it cable TV. Ha, ha, ha. And then the non joke version is paying for all this stuff is going to be too much and we should just go back to the old cable TV days. I have a counter to that, but I want to hear yours. I want to hear what you think of that argument.
2: Yeah, there are two things that are important there. One is there has been a lot of disruption, as I mentioned earlier, about how we access and who we pay to access content. But the reality is that content hasn't been disrupted. Content today is no cheaper to produce than it was five, ten years ago. Anything that consumers want to consume in massive volumes— is going to just through tonnage be
1: expensive? That's the same I with don't, gas.
2: What about what about
1: all the stuff on YouTube that is well, free well, so, slash nearly
2: free? But again, there are not 300 million Americans saying I want to watch five and a half hours of YouTube. But there there are a lot of Americans watching a lot of it, right? So isn't this, that's true? Isn't this some of just demographic? I mean, again, it's nowhere- Not everything is my kids, but my kids will watch unlimited amounts of people playing Fortnite on YouTube. Yeah, that's true, and we'll see how that shakes out. But I think yeah. the core is there is still demand for massive amounts of content. That has not gotten cheaper. And in fact, most of the new entrants, Amazon, Apple, and so right. forth, so are coming in with right more. Now. At Amazon, we took a British series, Top Gear. We reinterpreted it as the Grand Tour. The budgets are reportedly reportedly went up by several fold. The reality is most of these companies are actually saying, we're going to give you bigger, better, more expensive content. That money has to go somewhere, whether there's a bundle or whether there's not. The second element there is— But it is, doesn't have to go to TV, Right. It doesn't have to, but the audience is choosing that they still want it there. And then the second component is just until audiences say we either want to reduce how much we watch or we just want to take what Netflix has, you're not going to see a reduction. As long as no one can corner the market in video and as long as audiences are still going to say, I want some of that, I want some of that, I want some of that. It's going to be expensive. The but, bundle needs, but to but they exist. haven't had the choice to live in an unbundled
1: world up until now. Right now, they're now they're getting there. Yes, and now they're getting the part where they're saying, "You know what? I really value. I really value Netflix and mm-hmm. whatever is there. I really value Disney. Right. Maybe I value one or two other things. Maybe I think uh, qu- do we say Quibi? Quibi. Maybe I think Quibi's great. Maybe right. I think maybe I think the Warner Media thing is great. Whatever it is, I'm pa- maybe I'm going to pay for some version of ESPN or something in sports. Point is, I'm. It's it, what I'm going to pay is finite. And especially now that I have the actual choice, and I think I think that it's going to be very difficult for a lot of these services to survive because people aren't going to say, I want this and this and this and this. They'll say, I want these two things. And the rest of it I can live without.
2: Yeah, I certainly agree with that. And as I mentioned earlier, one of the big challenges is we ask this as existential question, which is how many services is it going to be? John Stanky has said that he believes this. This is the CEO of WarnerMedia. Yeah. He doesn't think it's going to be as many as 10. He thinks it's going to be more than four. There's this really critical question if you're a participant in the space, is it five or is it seven? That's a massive difference. The real challenge to me is not so much are there going to be five or are there seven, but how many of those five or seven are the free services that are just going to squeeze everyone out? People take for granted now that Prime Video is going to be one of those. They say that that's because Prime Video is spending more than anyone else save for Netflix. That may or may not be true. But at the end of the day, when it's being given away for free to 100 million households, that's a guaranteed slot. If Apple does the same thing, it's a guaranteed right. slot. Then you have those who have been first to market, such as Netflix. Then you have those like Disney who are just need-to-haves. That makes it very ruthless for those who are left. And if you believe that it's not going to get to 10, it's very hard to see how many people are going to win. So if you're and you should be Nervous. I think you can see that they're nervous and you yeah. can see that because they have multiple different video products in market. They have been very aggressive in launching new ones and also very aggressive in cutting back those who don't work. And they also have a product like DirecTV now, which they have continuously rekeyed, rebundled, changed the programming cost structure for, cut the price for, raised the price for. It's a company that is trying. So even it's a company that spent
1: eighty five to a hundred billion dollars in this thing, mm-hmm. they
2: might we might consider them underdogs in this race? I think the question of how they're an underdog really depends on to what extent you're looking at HBO. I said before, if you wanted to be a late entrant, there is no better gateway asset than HBO on Earth. And the reality is, no matter how good Disney is, Disney is still starting from zero. HBO in the United States has 36, 38 million subscribers. They've got another 90 or 100 million globally. Yeah. They have a stunning brand. How you use that asset is challenged by its price point, by its most favored nation's clauses for current distribution, the fact that it is not an ad-supported system, the protection of the brand. Those are all challenges. But if you said that you were an underdog and you got to use HBO, people would laugh. Yeah. All right. That's a good laugh. I wanted to see what you said anyway. One more quick break. Back again with Matt Ball.
1: Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Prop G pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Prop G pod wherever you get your podcasts. Back here with Matthew Ball. Now we're going to discuss who Matthew Ball is. And, and, I'm excited and, to hear. And, and, you know, you're going to tell us. You first started coming to my attention under someone else's name. You were not Matthew Ball at one point. You are writing. You were writing for Jason Hirshhorn under a pseudonym. I was. What was the
2: pseudonym? Liam Bullock. <laughs> Why Liam Bullock? Liam is my middle name. Okay. Bullock is my mother's maiden name. Okay. And it has this brilliant after effect of being incredibly SEO optimized. <laughs> Anytime that I was picked up or covered, <laughs> it has been nine years, and I guarantee you you're not getting false hits. There uh, is a... Uh, ballerina who shares my name, who constantly destroys my search relevance, and yet Liam persists. You're, you're, a, you're a handsome man. You do not look like a ballerina, but maybe you do. Who knows? I don't want to judge. I don't want to prejudge. I don't want to keep talking about ballerinas. What were you doing prior to writing for Jason Hirschhorn? So prior to that, I was a management consultant at Accenture. I focused on corporate strategy primarily for media and entertainment. Is that a
1: first job out of school type of
2: thing? Yeah. Yeah. Well, first job out of B-School, which at I'm Canadian in Canada as an undergraduate this. job. Yeah, okay. So, so you 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 do the standard. I'm going to be a consultant. Yeah. So, so the the story of me connecting with Jason is a funny one and a really lucky one on my part, which is I entered management consulting with this perception of the halcyon days that probably ended in '97, where you do two years of management consulting and everyone wants to hire you. Yeah they're desperate to. You're the best, you're the brightest. I then found out once I got there that, you know, that was subsequently actually investment banking. And then the time period I was in, it was actually going to tech. It was going to Google in 2004. It wasn't...
1: Yeah, plus also consulting got blown up, sort of Pat Post. Got blown up. It was 500 times bigger
2: and so forth. And so at the same time, I had been writing just out of general interest with the stuff that I had been learning, that I had disagreed with, that I wanted to talk about. And I started writing under my own name and it ended up pretty popular. Felix Salmon wrote a big piece. He disagreed with me about Netflix as an example. And that started to make some of the You're partners. you writing on a blog?
1: Yeah, out yeah. of my old B-school publication. And what's that impulse to write, right? Because I know a lot of writers. Mm-hmm. They generally aren't people who want to be management
2: consultants. So usually these two things are pretty split. Yeah, the impulse kind of comes from one of three areas. One is, as with the Netflix pieces, it's a frustration with a narrative that I think is wrong and I have the selfishness to want to correct it. The second is- Some people say, everyone's wrong, and then you go, I'm gonna profit from it, but I don't need to write about it. Yeah, but you have to put it in the perspective too, to some extent, is it's a relatively unnoticed 24-year-old kid yeah. who's like, I'm just gonna explore, have conversations, see what people think about this. And so I just started doing that. The partners did not like that. The notability was a little bit too high. It was one of those catch-22s where if it's bad, no one cares and it doesn't help you, but if it's great, then all of a sudden,
1: you're flying hey, hey, a little too talk high. About this.
2: Yeah. So I was told very clearly, you have to stop this. If you do it again, you'll be fired. And I made the very natural decision to just change it to a weird name. And I kept doing that. And Jason had discovered the blog at one point and curated it in his media redef newsletter. And then a few weeks passed, and I think he had rediscovered the blog. And I had written another eight pieces, and he just fastidiously combed through it and published all of them in one day. He's just a random guy, right? Under, it, was, it was Liam at
1: the time, right? Yeah, it was under Liam at that point. I found all this stuff. I'm going to share it with you. Right. Okay.
2: And so Jason gave an incredible promotional opportunity. And I started hearing from people. And at the same time, again, this is from the perspective of, I don't know what the next job I'm going to do is. I don't know the gateway there. I don't have connections. I'm Canadian. I had recently moved to the United States. And at the bottom of that Redef newsletter, it said where his address was. It said, I think, 25 Morton Street. He's not there anymore. And I decided that I'd just walk in and try to introduce myself. It was really strange because, of course, I'm still young. I put on a suit. I had a tie, which is not the way to do it with Jason when he doesn't know you. You go down to Tribeca, knock on his penthouse. In West Village. Okay. At the office. And I showed up, and it was a very strange situation because I basically had to say to the attendant who didn't even work for him, it's a startup space. I was like, my name is Liam Bollock, and she (laughs) says, can I see your ID? And, of course, I have to say, well, it says Matthew Ball, and so she has to pass (laughs) this weird note to Jason (laughs) That says this guy, Liam. Had you of course, said you were
1: coming or you just do up? No, I just showed up.
2: Yeah. But so Jason doesn't know the names of this random blogger, let alone this double hyphenated weird name. And so I think I waited for 20 or 30 minutes and he finally comes out and it's like, what is going on here? And I had just said, hey, you seem to like my work. Can you help me find a job? And he had a very reasonable response that should have been the one that I went in with at the time, but I was too young and naive. And he said, why don't you write for me? Keep doing what you're doing, but I'll work with you to make the pieces better. We'll plan them. I'll connect you with those who have the information to make them even better than we can just together, and we'll see where that goes. And so I spent about a year prepping pieces so that they could come out in rapid succession, working with Jason. And as part of that, I started connecting with a guy, Jesse Jacobs, who was the president of Peter Chernin's Uh company, The Chernin Group. I sat down with him at eight and a half over, I think, like a Hanukkah dinner, and started talking to him. And it was a great example of, I worked with Jason, I got smarter, I was still writing under a pseudonym, but he also was able to act as an intermediary to go to a guy like Jesse and say, meet this guy, you've read his stuff, he isn't who he seems to be, you should talk to him. And then a few months later, I went to work for the Turner Group, specifically at Otter Media under Sarah Hardin. And... That was really the big opportunity where I started getting out of the old path into the new one.
1: So, Jason, were you were you were you were you consulting when you went to
2: work for Jason, or did you had you stopped already? I never worked for Jason. I just I was, well, was going to ask you him. if he
1: paid you living wages.
2: No, it's I look I. It is probably not the best use of time. Yeah, uh, at least not where my relative specialty is. I but think he opened
1: I, up a world for you, Right. or helped you open up a world. Yeah. Yeah, and so you go work for Chernin, and then right. you do that for X
2: amount of time, and then at some point you end up at Amazon. Yeah, so I'd connected—I mean, look, this is really the story of the same opportunity. I'd connected with a guy, Ted Hope, who now runs original movie production at Amazon. Sort of one of the, 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 the 80s, 90s indie producers of Note. Yeah, I mean, we'll say 2000s and 2010s okay. of Note, Good. too. And Manchester by the Sea, yeah. big, sick, big movies. And I connected with him and— that was prior to me going to the Churnin Group. He had connected me with the then head of Amazon Studios. I almost went there instead of going to Churnin, decided to go to Churnin. And then Amazon had come and said that they were starting a new group, the strategy and planning group. They within had, movies? or within, no, within, within Amazon Studios. Okay. And this was really as part of a big process at Amazon, which at the time was still very small. I think they had 100 employees at the studio. They were only in four countries. By the end of the year, they went to 200 countries and territories. And they needed to start building up that managerial level. How do we make sure that we're making the right decisions, that we've learned from the prior decisions, that our data, which was originally hypothesis-driven and oriented around first seasons, is now being data-driven around multiple seasons. And so so I went to run that. So they
1: hire you to be sort of a brain at Amazon.
2: Right. And and what
1: was that experience like working there for you at that time?
2: It was the perfect example of a company that has strong convictions, incredible assets— but is new to the space. And I don't mean that in a pejorative way. I mean that in the sense of when you go to a media company to consult, they talk about there's 20 years of hierarchy. This is how we do it. There's process. It's it's not just how we do it. It's just things happen, right? At Amazon, there was a need to carve out, well, how are we going to do this? Why are we going to do this? There's a general rigor towards reevaluating prior decisions that were being made. And to some extent, the street and analysts have said, Amazon keeps pivoting and moving, and what does that mean about the last strategy? And the answer is the company is always organized to do the thing that works then and then move to the new thing. And so when you talk about someone like me who had written first about what I think the digital opportunity works looks like, Chernin was focused on going after with real rigor, emerging but generally overlooked small to modest opportunities like Crunchyroll, and then going to Amazon, which is saying, we're going for it. We want to be the dominant destination for video, we think we can be the seller of everyone else, and we have the capital, we have the talent, the tech, and the reach. That was an incredibly large purview, and that's just exciting.
1: Was there anything where they said, we think we're going to go this way, and you said, "Mm, I looked at it, let's let's try this instead, and they actually listened?
2: I mean, the, the, the fundamental anchoring of that company was rigorous decision making. I think no one would be successful at any level in that company if they couldn't say that they affected a decision one way or another. The great thing about the way that they make decisions, and of course there are downsides with every process, tech looks at content differently, is that doc-based decision making process meant that the entire company from marketing to production to development to post-production to finance and research comes together and decides whether or not they think that this is the right decision. And my job was basically to chaperone, guide, and help that process as it went up to the studio heads to make a decision. So you were there under the Roy Price era. He since left. You mm-hmm. left
1: after he left. Mm-hmm. Um, so now you're on the outside. What's your sense of how they're operating differently now than they did under your tenure?
2: I don't think that there's anything fundamentally different about how they operate internally. I think the more interesting question is – how, as with anything at Amazon, the complexity shifts. I'll give you a good example of that, which was when I was there. One of the first decisions was what to do with an HBO renewal. We had renewed for X million dollars per year. This or, is you, you could you
1: through HBO. If you were an Amazon Prime sub, you could watch Girls and other older HBO shows. Yeah, you
2: could basically watch, with some exceptions like Game of Thrones. You could watch a show an you could watch an Sopranos, HBO yep. original with a three-year holdback. So when Veep Season 6 comes out, you've got Seasons 1 to 3 on Amazon. This is all a long-winded and very typical way of me answering a short question. The point is, we were looking at, do we renew this? But then, that was right around the time in which we started selling HBO. And so now we were going to customers and saying, we will give you a better experience with more content, with a direct access to the HBO content you like. And by the way, internally, we're now no longer paying for that, Right we're actually pocketing a few bucks per month. That changes what content you do acquire, how much you invest, what the business rationale is. Fire TV is another business that didn't exist in the early days of Prime Video does today.
1: But wait, the answer was renew, right? Because I just watched The Sopranos over the last few months through my Amazon Prop I mean, that 7. depends on the term. But, but they did.
2: My, my point is more, the whole question of how are they doing and what's different is yeah. really a reflection of how that business has become more sophisticated. Four or five years ago, the marketplace was constantly looking at Amazon and saying, well, this is it. Netflix is over. It's the existential threat. There's a company with more cash with a longer time Oh,
1: Netflix would say we take Amazon very seriously.
2: They will. But I think the whole point is those businesses look very similar because they're going after the same consumers with equivalent projects. The monetization is very different, and the strategy around it is very different. There's always this question of what is Amazon going to do with live sports? And I think one of the interesting questions is actually not just – are they going to add live sports? It's how does Prime Video change if live sports exist? Do you still license catalog content? Do you just make Game of Thrones or rather Lord of the Rings style content? Yeah, somewhat Lord of the Rings, right? So so
1: Amazon gets into video. There's an initial idea that says we're going to do this. We're going to disrupt Hollywood. We're going to change the way scripts are vetted. Uh, they come out with some shows that no one remembers. You do, but and I do because I went to one of the premieres, but but no one remembers. Uh, what was the, What was the DC one called? There was one with John Goodman a bunch of senators living in the same house. Betas. There you go. Beta House. Beta
2: House. That goes away. Then they do Nope, transfer. Alpha House. Beta's was a show. Alpha House was another show. Okay. It was very strange to have two of our first three shows be Greek letters. Okay, so you worked there and you still can't remember the name. Point taken. They were gone by the time I got there. Okay. Then we get
1: to transparent. All of a sudden, winning awards. We have Jeff Bezos on stage. He explains that the reason it's good for us, for Mm -hmm. Amazon, to do this is because we win an award and people buy that many more shoes or stick along, stick around in Amazon Prime. It's better. Now, from the outside, it looks like that era is over, Mm -hmm. and what they want to do is big swings, a Lord of the Rings prequel.
2: Everything has to be bigger, 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 bigger audiences. What changed? Again, I think this is a question of how did the business evolve? One of the weird things to frame the business is just the idea of where Prime was in 2012 versus where it is in 2019, right? There's this thing where people would talk about the fact that Amazon was doing Salt Lake or uh, Silver Lake, rather, programming. Uh, if you're not hanging out in L.A., it's it's the Brooklyn of L.A. Right. It's th- this idea that it was primarily coastal upper income programming. Yep. And I think one of the things that's important about that is, you know, back in – 2012, that is what the prime subscriber base looked like. No one ever programs for the audience they don't
1: have. By the way, Netflix, when they were doing originals, started off doing that kind of programming, right? Right. They weren't doing Ashton Kutcher shows until well after that.
2: No, they were doing a Washington-based power broker show. With David Fincher and Kevin Spacey, and it looks like it could be an HBO show. Right. Whenever you have a service that wants to grow, become scaled and more mass, you start by growing out from concentric circles. Look, I mean, it's not altogether when we talk about Alpha House, that was another show about Congress staffers living together. That's a reflection of the base. And so I think the real question is, as that business starts to expand, as your audience expands, and to some extent, Prime itself grew so much more than most of the Wall Street estimates believed it was going to, that you have to start growing your base. The decision then to go from one market to 200 countries and markets globally also changes that show. Marvelous Mrs. Maisel is a marvelous show. It is not going to drive first-time Prime subscribers, not Prime Video, but first-time Prime subscribers, in Malaysia, in India, in Brazil. When you start to look at what types of shows really break out, really differentiate, and most importantly are going to change people's perception about paying for video in the first place. In Japan, people do not pay for video. In India, people do not pay for video. You need so many different things in programming and going for the second best-selling novel of all time and trying to do something new and ambitious is a incredible pathway to that. Amazon
1: is bigger. Prime is bigger. If we want to use video to either ring, subscribe to Prime mm-hmm. or stick around to Prime, we have to reach many people with that video. Right. That's the short version. Um for a long time, I've assumed that that the people who work at Amazon, mm-hmm. Jeff Bezos and Deng, know what they're doing, and the fact that they are spending billions of dollars on on video, mm-hmm. yet when I go to Amazon.com, I don't see any evidence of the fact that there's video there. There has to be a method to that madness, but now I'm sort of questioning it. Um, and occasionally, they'll send me an envelope with a stamp, and I'll say, "You should watch." Uh, whatever our show is. I haven't checked your mail in years. It seems to me they've got this weird ass they're spending billions of dollars on and yet still not spending a lot of time telling people about It's hard for me to imagine that most people even know Amazon Prime Video exists. Is that a question? It is a question. What what am I missing? That's the question. Well, first
2: of all, there is a video tab on the homepage that if you are watching something right below the search bar will say, finish watching Man in the High Castle. Or rather, go watch Patriot. It's phenomenal. Uh I think the point is, One of the interesting elements about how you look at video, and I think this explains a lot of what Apple is doing and why, is Jeff in the early years talked a lot about the Amazon flywheel, the Prime flywheel. I think that's really profound. I think what Apple is looking to do is replicate the video or the Amazon video flywheel, which is to say the Fire TV is now in, I think they said, 36 million homes in the United States. Well, guess what? Now it doesn't really matter as much if you're getting a direct mail, if you're getting an Amazon.com Reminder, if you're one of those one in four homes in the United States with a fire TV, you know about Amazon programming. That's part of what you do. You also have the fact that Gartner has said that Amazon Video is now essentially neck and neck with iTunes, both domestically and abroad, in digital video downloads. Five years ago, iTunes was so laughably dominant in that space. Then you have the Channels program, which is the primary seller of HBO, Showtime, and Stars, yeah. and so forth. I think the whole point is, That flywheel – devices, channels, digital downloads, and Amazon content – is all synergistic. And to some extent, it doesn't matter how much an audience member knows what's what or where it's coming from. In the same way an Amazon customer doesn't care if it's fulfilled by Amazon, shipped by Amazon, or an Amazon Basics. The goal with everything that Amazon does is to satisfy customers and to give them the fullest range of possible options.
1: How do we think Amazon is going to do in this battle royale we've been discussing for the last hour?
2: I mean, I think it's guaranteed to be one of those enduring You think platforms. they're in. It's a done it's a As done long deal. as they stay committed to it, they will. And that's one of the great advantages, as I mentioned with tech, is they have the money and the reach and the time. Which is not at all to say that the programming isn't up to snuff. It absolutely is. We've seen that with Emmys and Golden Globes year in and year out. And the forward plan, Lord of the Rings, inclusive, Wheel of Time, suggests that they have properties that audiences will love, too. Matthew Ball, this was two years in the making? We'll say so.
1: Was it worthwhile? It was. Was it good for you? Mm Mm-hmm. It was good for me. Thanks for coming, Matt. Remember, Bob Iger would spend millions of dollars to hear what you just heard for free. The reason you can hear it for free is because of our fine sponsors. Thank you, fine sponsors. Thank you also to Golda Arthur, who is Recode Media's producer. Jelani Carter is our associate producer. Joel Robbie is our fine editor. I made him do extra work on this. Sorry, Joel. Thank you. You like this episode. You like Recode Media because you are still listening to me an hour into this podcast. So my ask of you is to tell someone else about this podcast. Thanks for listening. See you soon.
0: More to do's, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder.